text we'll be looking at is printed in your bulletin. We've been looking at uh, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Um, and that brings us to chapter 13. Uh, when you hear the word policeman, um, what is your gut reaction uh, to that phrase? Uh, for many of us, we don't really have a reaction to that one, but how about the IRS uh, when you hear that? I just filled out my taxes, so this one is not so easy uh, for me to actually think about. How about when you hear the word president or, or Congress? Uh, each one of these has become much more difficult. Uh, Paul wrote this letter uh, in approximately 57 A.D. to the church in Rome. Uh, what he really wanted for us to do is not just to understand, but actually to experience the gospel. He spent much of the letter, um, 11 chapters actually, looking at the reality uh, that we live in a deeply broken world and we're profoundly broken people. The difficult part of that is that there are really no exceptions, at least the way that Paul has explained it. And all of our attempts to fix or heal the world and ourselves um, have just been failures and that we need someone to come and heal us. Paul's point is that God has poured out His mercy on us through His Son. He did what we couldn't do, and it radically changes everything, especially our relationships, relationships with God, ourselves, and those around us, and even uh, our relationship with our government. Uh, I did not time this. Uh, people asked, did I actually come up with this? I didn't. Uh, it, this chapter really couldn't come at a more important time. Uh, to say that most are cynical about our elected officials would be a gross understatement. Uh, we tend to get angry, frustrated, or even worse at what they do and don't do. And this chapter sort of takes that head on. I will tell you, he's not addressing church-state uh, relationships. Instead, he really is addressing how the mercy of God should change, impact our citizenship. As individuals, how should it change how we interact and think about our government? Look with me as I'll read from Romans chapter 13, the entire chapter. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong, do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will not be commended. And you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They're God's servants, agents of wrath to bring about punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of the possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. 
So put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, close yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that you would be with us as we look into this uh, very important chapter, chapter that seems to speak down through the ages and certainly into our time and into our lives. We pray for your wisdom. We pray for your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. According to latest statistics, the Americans, our trust in our government is at an all-time low. It hasn't always been that way. There was a chart published that sort of tracked uh, the decline of trust in our government, and that decline began uh, really during the presidency of Lyndon Johnson. It overlapped the Vietnam War in the 70s thanks to not only the war but also to Watergate, sped up the loss of our general faith and our general feeling about our government. We've had slight resurgences down through the 80s and other times, and yet in February of 2014, just 24% of people said that they trusted our government. The exit poll in 2014 in the midterm elections made it clear that those things not only had not improved, but they had actually gotten worse. 20% of people said they trusted the government to do what's right, always or most of the time, while 80% of people said they trusted the government only some of the time or never. The collapse of the trust has profound impacts, actually, massive sort of impacts, especially for politicians. Most of us consider them less than brokers, at least according to the statistics that we see about our public, meaning that everything that they do and say is viewed as being suspicious. This lack of trust, uh, even though we, we're not going to do this, if we were to take a poll here this morning, um, is seen really as the new norm. Uh, we don't trust. Um, our leaders, people in authority. Uh, this chapter takes that head on, and it starts with just telling us what our place is. Uh, due to God's mercy, due to everything that he's done, what is the Christian response or place um, in our government? Or what does it look like to be a citizen with an allegiance to God himself? Just the context. Uh, this is written, Paul writes this, about the ruling authorities, at least during the first century. I'll tell you, they are nothing like the authorities that we know or that we've experienced. Specifically, Paul is writing about the Roman Empire and more specifically about Nero. If you've been around, you know anything about Nero, at least his earlier years were better than his later years. Let's just put it that way. Roman Empire, specifically the system of government under him, was a system built on injustice and imperial arrogance. That would be the best way to describe it. Just sort of capture what living under Nero was like. He regularly took Christians, uh, impaled them in his garden, and set them on fire as tiki torches would be the best description. He was unfriendly at best and completely hostile uh, most of the time. In the midst of that environment, Paul writes this chapter, and what he calls us to 
in verse 5 is stunning if you realize the background. He calls us uh, to submit. He puts it very bluntly and plainly. Uh, just so you'll know, that means to put oneself under. He describes it in verse 1 this way, to be subject to the governing authorities. Now, why would Paul say that? In verse 1, he sort of unrolls uh, the reasons that he says this. The first is because it's right. What do I mean by that? Paul says that every authority has been established by God, instituted by him even. And they deserve our respect and our submission. That they're there because of God's providence. He put them there, to put it bluntly, that there are no accidents, at least as far as governments are concerned. In verses 3 and 4, he unrolls it even further. He says, because it's wise. Uh, God holds us accountable, or the government holds us accountable. It makes living together possible, is the best description I can give of it. Without this kind of threat that the government has, human self-interest would make living together absolutely impossible. The government, it's wise to give in to them. They bear the sword. The reference to punishment here is obvious, uh, and Paul sort of unrolls that. I want you just to imagine if individuals bear the sword. Without submitting to government, social order would be virtually impossible and unknown. And then in 6 and 7, he goes further. This is why you pay taxes. The authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. In a really stunning statement, Paul recognizes that governing is hard work is the best description, that we're to give them what we owe them. They do their part, according to Paul, and we do ours. Here it is, the default of every Christian to any state or government is one of submission. One writer said this, is showing respect, honor, and courtesy is to be sort of the way that we operate within this sphere. Now the question is, are there boundaries to that? Is that unlimited? Um, and Paul says that there are boundaries, that there isn't a no matter what sort of phrase. In other words, you aren't required to submit no matter what is demanded or what is required. And he hints it actually in the text. Verse 7, he said this, Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. This is really repeating what Jesus said under, give unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. It undercuts the basic assumption of the culture in which Paul lived in the ancient Near East. The king, the emperor, was deity, and he was to be worshipped. And the result of that was that the state had divine authority. And Paul's point is, yes, we give honor to his honor, and therefore, we give worship to who deserves worship as well. Yes, paying taxes, but no to Caesar worship. And then in verses 3 and 4, he says this. Rulers hold no charity to those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of ones in authority? Do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant. A very small phrase, and yet loaded meaning that they answer to God whether they realize it or not. They operate under God's order. They're not free to do whatever they want. And then here's sort of the boundary. They can't forbid or require something that God either requires or forbids. 
1959, 138 Chinese leaders presented the Christian Manifesto to the government, to the country, pledging the support of Christians uh, to the government. It basically went something like this. Uh, the state would authorize or approve of certain churches if they would agree to three basic principles. Uh, they call this the three-self movement, by the way, if you were to look this up. And it means that they had to be self-governing, self-supporting, and self-propagating. On paper, it sounds great. The movement in the eyes of the critics, however, uh, was something less than kind. They said this was the government's attempt to infiltrate, subvert, and control much of organized Christianity. Just sort of unroll for you what these principles meant. It meant this. Christians in China that were a part of the self-church movement were forbidden to evangelize on any place other than church property. Churches could never take any outside funding, and they must be self-governing, which meant there would be absolutely no outside connections. Many Christians in China saw this as the government forbidding, just as an example, evangelism, what God requires and would not be a part of the self-church movement. Because of that, uh, they suffer intense persecution, imprisonment, not just for themselves, but being involved in a church that's not a part of the official church uh, can pretty much mean that your families, uh, if they're caught, would be imprisoned as well. Christians are not to undermine or show disrespect to the government of those who serve. In this environment that we live, what about us? Most of us respond this way. They don't deserve my respect. I don't like them. I didn't vote for them. Or maybe better, this is my favorite, personal favorite, they're an idiot. Um, I've heard them all, and to my shame, I've used a few of them. Uh, to be honest, it just is excuse-making. It means that really we've forgotten the mercy of God. We think somehow that we're better, brighter, more moral. If you're a Christian this morning, has our government required, required you to do something that God forbids? Or has the government that you live on, does it forbid something that God requires? Paul also says that this is not just submission out of self-interest because that's definitely in the wrong direction. What do I mean by that is I will obey as long as the punishment is present, but when it's gone, then all bets are off. And in governments where the fear of punishment is intense, what happens is we will do, Christians will do, and have done immoral, incredibly um, offensive things under the uh, excuse that, well, I was just taking orders. We submit because God has been merciful. He's brought me in. What it means if you're a Christian is this. You treat parents, ministers, civil magistrates with deference. One writer said this. This stunning chapter calls us for a calm, qualified respect. They deserve, they've earned, they our Respect is required whether they represent our views or not. That's our place. Now, what's the state's place? In verse 4, Paul sort of unrolls this. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. 
one of the functions of the government is really to punish evil. Almost the universal consensus among everyone is that there is no civil order without this power. We all know what we believe murder, theft, lying, fraud, all undermine peaceful society. There might be differences of what the punishment actually should be, but there shouldn't be any question that something should be done about all of those sort of activities. Paul uses the word sword here, and that literally means the power to inflict punishments. And in his culture, in the ancient Near East, that certainly included the death penalty. But this passage is not about the death penalty. Um, You can't prove capital punishment from Romans 13. But even more telling is also what he says in verse 4. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Literally, he states that God's servant to you for good. The government is to be for good. This is the opposite side of the coin. Two different and opposite things are being discussed here, or at least Paul is laying them out. It's not just that the state has a negative function, but an equally forceful positive one, promoting good. What does that mean when Paul sort of lays this out here? It really means praises, encouraging right behavior, fostering right service. It's not just by an individual either. It's for the individual is the way he's phrased this. It means that the government is to promote economic, social, cultural, physical good for people. It's very broad. Actually, most writers have interpreted it extremely broad. John Perkins is an African-American Christian leader from Mississippi who was almost beaten to death in the 70s for his racial, um, for advocating and fighting for racial justice. He is, by all accounts, uh, if there is such a thing, a Christian celebrity. One evening in 2007 in Oregon, uh, the writer who spent time with Perkins was describing actually an opportunity he had to be with him in private and just to talk to him. He was carrying, or at least driving him to be a keynote speaker at a conference. And as he drove, he asked person Perkins what it was like for him to be in Mississippi now. Dr. Perkins replied this, I'm kind of a hero in Mississippi. It seems that every time the state newspaper writes something, me, as if I created the word, he said. And then he looked out the window and said, but when I think of how many homes my fame has built for the poor in Mississippi, I realize that my fame hasn't built any homes for the poor. He goes on to say this, I don't put much stock in my fame. This rules out, Paul rules out a sort of limited view of government or an overly powerful one. No support for the idea that the government should have nothing to do with anything outside of law enforcement or even that law enforcement should be the primary function of government. It should promote good, according to Paul. In fact, that's what he covers first. I want you to think just briefly about what that means. One writer said this, This presses us that Christians should not be crazy dissidents who won't cooperate with the most basic social mechanisms. What does it mean for the government to promote good? It's good to have strong schools to educate our children. It's good to have programs to help the disabled and the weak and the broken. It's good to help those who struggle to put foot on the table. It's good to help those who who need to find employment. 
It's good that people are treated fairly, equitably. That people are paid well regardless of gender, race, or even sexual preference. Those are all good things. Paul says that it is the right place of our government to be involved with those things. So how do we live in spite of that or because of that? And then he takes us into verses 8 through 10. It's easy to see this as sort of an, uh, an individual appeal that somehow Paul has talked about that last week with Kyle and now he's revisiting it again. And in between, he just wedged the idea of government in there for some strange reason. It, it, this is sort of a random disconnected thought about what he really wanted to talk about. Uh, and he sort of stuck this in between. Instead, this is actually all connected in some pretty profound ways. What do I mean by that? This section, 8 through 10, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. What Paul is inviting us to is to live incarnationally, to live in full participation. In verses 12, in chapter 12, 21, he calls us to overcome evil with good. Then he goes on to talk about our involvement with the, with the government, actually involvement in society. Verse 7, give everyone what they're due. And then in verse 8, paying everyone what we owe, it's not just a participation, but it's a participation in our neighborhoods and actually in our community. Christians overcome evil by doing good. We seek the prosperity the peace of the communities we live, we overcome, as verse 21 in the last chapter tells us. In chapter, or in verse 8, Paul's point is a painful one. And he simply says this, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. This is a painful sort of verse, especially for the Christian community, because it means this. If you're a Christian this morning, you have a debt. A love debt to those around you. Love provides, the law provides us a guide as to what that love looks like. He doesn't pit the law and sort of love against each other. And he said the loving thing is sort of the obedient thing. Martin Luther King, really very close to his death, was speaking at Ebenezer Baptist Church um, in Atlanta. And this is what he said, If any of you are around when I have to meet my day, I don't want a long funeral. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. Every now and then I wonder what I want them to say. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Prize. That isn't important. Tell them not to mention that I have three or four hundred other awards. That's not important either. Tell them not to mention where I went to school. I'd like somebody to mention that the day Martin Luther King died, he tried to love somebody. That really captures what Paul is pressing if you're a Christian this morning in these verses. And then he finishes it up with verses 11 through 14. Why? We need to be reminded that we're citizens of both this world and God's. A reminder that in the midst of this love offensive that he calls us to, that things will not always be the way that they appear or the way they are now. Any moment, according to Paul, Jesus will break through and set everything right. Some have read these verses and said that Paul is wrong, and it really misses the point. Because what Paul is hinting at, and what we all know, at least from experience, is that this life is incredibly brief. And even more importantly, this world is passing, and he's calling us to build on things that last. It takes incredible imagination and reflection. 
this morning, if you're a Christian, you owe your community. It means that you cannot live in a ghetto. It means that you cannot hold your neighbors or your culture around you or even your society at arm's length. This attitude that I take care of mine and you can take care of yours just really doesn't wash with what Paul enrolls here. This bad for you, glad for me is really in, absolutely incompatible with God's mercy. You must love your community. This community, the community that you find yourself living in, you must work for good. You should be known, by the way, as a good neighbor. Somebody prepared to join in the fun. It really begs the question, would you even be invited uh, would be a, a legitimate question. Do you suffer with your community? What do I mean by that? Are their problems yours? Are their tears yours? Do we really incarnate? And what I mean by that, do you really put flesh on the mercy of God? Leo Tolstoy told a story about two old men uh, who decided that before they died, they wanted to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. After months of planning, they collected everything that they needed and they began to walk. After a long day on the road, they came to what at least appeared to be a deserted village. Nobody was about and seeing a small hut, they sort of looked in to see what was happening, and they entered in, and the way they described it was a hut full of darkness and death. As their eyes adjusted to the dark, what they saw was beds on bodies, or bodies on beds. And when they came closer, what they realized is that these people were barely alive. They were alive, but barely. One of the men wanted to stay and help, and he encouraged his companion just to go on. I'll catch up with you later, is what he said. And he opened the windows and the doors, and he offered, began to offer these individuals food and drink, and he began to see, uh, begin to meet their needs. And actually, what he realized is that what was going on here was much more complex than he's ever imagined. This whole village was suffering, is the way he described it. He finally found his friend and said, Look, I, I need to stay a little bit longer. Um, I'll find you later. So this one man stays in the village, according to the story, helping these villagers find their way, again, to happiness and health. He never actually made it to Jerusalem. The other man made his way to Jerusalem, and on his way back, he came upon this village that he didn't recognize, but seemed at least strangely familiar to him. And suddenly it dawned on him, this is where I left my friend. But everything is radically different. The men and women, the older and the younger, are busy at work and play. Animals are healthy. Crops are growing. And what in the world has happened? The villagers explained to him that someone had stopped along the way and had given them back their life. If you're a Christian this morning, that is really what this is calling you to. Um, it's calling you to give life back to your community. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love and your mercy. Forgive us for the ways that instead of giving ourselves to our community, we have sought to use it for our own advantage, for our own profit. Forgive us for the ways that we have criticized 
we have failed to show respect and honor to those that you have placed in authority over us, that we're ashamed of the way that we speak of them, ashamed of the way we regard them. Father, we pray now that you would change us, for we need to be changed by your mercy in order that we might change the world. In the rich name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.